All right, we are rolling now. Counting us down. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey there, Misketeers, and welcome back to Missing Out. I am Tari J. I am Lex Michael. Ahem. For those of you who it is their first time, I have rightfully composed a rhyme. What we share is media and experience. Movies, music, books, whatever passes our clearance. We use those things as a retrospective, thus causing us to become introspective. Uh, All right, Misketeers, there's some chairs in the back, so sit the fuck down, because we're talking Chirac. Hell yeah! (laughs) I'm good, I feel like like our day's work is done, man. Like, we can go home now. Yeah, basically. Cool, well, thank you for joining us here on Missing Out. Um, We will not be doing this whole episode in verse, I just thought that would be a fun thing to do. As Lex mentioned, we are talking about the 2015 uh, American musical crime comedy drama film. It's a Spike Lee joint. Hell yeah. It was uh, created by Amazon Studios. So yeah. And Lex, you brought this in for our monthly theme of Cinema Lit 101. Uh, So can can you pitch this for us? I can. So from one of uh, America's most vital and significant cinematic voices comes a story that uh, is is quite dang near as old as time itself. Uh, based on the play Lysistrata by Aristophanes, this is a story about one woman's quest to end violence uh, by any means necessary, except ideally nonviolent means. It is an incredible blending of tones, of genres. Uh, The performances across the board are amazing. But the biggest reason uh, when we started discussing this theme that I really wanted to talk about it is because I have been having this thing lately where I've been absorbing a lot of history, not just American history, but world history as well. And something you learn, a real depressing pattern you, you happen to pick up after a while, is that not a lot changes. Some things, some things change, but a lot of it really does stay the same. I think the past is not the past the way we think it is. Past is present. It's wild to me that you can essentially do the story of Lysistrata now without changing very much. And we're going to talk about that. But uh, before we get there, I guess I just want to say up top, of course, it's it's Spike Lee. It's Spike Lee. And this, for a lot of people, was where he had been making um, movies, of course, for, for many decades and stuff. But this, for a lot of people, was like, oh my god, like Spike Spike is back doing like his biting, really sharp, uh, sociopolitical, insightful Spike thing. Um, and I really enjoy it for that. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting your thoughts Tari, what did you think of this thing, and had you seen it before, and what are your preliminary thoughts? Do you agree with what I have just said, or are my thoughts now uh, to be decried and derided? Where are you at? I won't delegate. Nope. I won't <laughs> <laughs> derogate or deride. Um, no, I. Uh, this was my first time seeing it, and I, I don't think it was even really on my radar. I know that from doing some research that... A lot of people had panned it uh, from just seeing the trailer because 
they they didn't want to give it a chance um and i think it's a really fun movie it's not without its issues uh and we'll talk about that as we go on once we pass the spoiler wall but i thought it was a really fun and interesting exploration because it manages to integrate a lot of our modern issues and has a way of seamlessly uh, kind of taking the core of the Lysistrata uh, storyline and kind of pasting it onto a modern, shy, I keep wanting to call it shy town, but Chicago <laughs> backdrop, which, which I thought was really well executed. It's star studded. So I thought like, man, everyone's doing the most. Uh, and I like that. I think it really adds to the whimsy of the movie. Yes. And, you know, like you were saying right up top, you know, you can rattle off a list of genres that this movie is playing in. And I think the way he is able to balance those genres and those tones, I think is insanely impressive and maybe a little off-putting to some people. But for me, you know, within the span of a scene, uh, you can go from... uh, you can go from like abject horror or anger to the things that are happening to the characters in this world, but also in the same scene, all of a sudden Spike will pivot and you're, I'm laughing my ass off at some real whimsical, strange, absurd thing that he is now juxtaposed with this tragedy. And it creates a really, I can see it being off-putting for some people, not necessarily knowing where to put that tonal call it a discrepancy in their minds but for me i find it endlessly impressive and then to pivot from one to the other and then over here to say a musical number and back within the span of the same scene while doing all of those other things like i just find that crazy impressive because that that's a that's a high wire balancing act that's insanely tough to do especially especially when you're talking about a uh, subject matter as immediately relevant and harrowing as the subject matter that this movie plays with definitely and so like i think also beyond the fact that it is like a spikely ambitious project and everything is in in verse or almost everything is in verse beyond that there are a lot of people who came into it just wanting to take it at at its face and because there's an aspect of it that people felt from the trailer that it is trivializing or comedifying real issues like the gang violence uh, in Chicago and I think it really not shines a light on it because everyone knows that like you know black on black crime is an issue and it's important to the communities that 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 are affected by it um but i also think that it does a nice job of giving it the proper weight once you're in the midst of the film and shows the human cost of those issues and it also tries to make sure that people know that it isn't something as simple as just like a one-time event like it's systemic And I think that that is a really good message that if you haven't seen the movie and you've only seen the trailer, like we brought this movie to your attention, uh, you should know that it is more than just like Liz Estrada with the hip hop people in it. It it also takes the time to explore the uh, deeper aspects of inner city violence. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the trailer because I do not believe that I ever saw 
any advertising for this movie outside of like the key art, the one sheet. All I knew was, oh my God, Spike Lee's doing another movie. It's going to be streaming on Amazon. I don't even have to leave my apartment. Amazing. I'm sold. You don't have to show me anything else about this. And then I, I was passingly familiar with Lysistrata. I had a friend uh, who was a classics major in college and so had this big collection mm. of uh, sort of Greek plays, comedies, tragedies. And at a certain point, this was over a decade ago now, just gave me a stack of them. So I've had a copy of Lysistrata for a while. And so when I knew that this movie was coming and I knew that he was basing it on uh, the play by Aristophanes, I finally grabbed it off my shelf and I, I read it. And yeah, it's uh, it's pretty much it. Pretty much did it. <laughs> I only really know of the heavy quotes controversy because of my research about the production and the leading up to the film. And I watched a few people's what I thought were going to be reviews and they ended up just being like rants about the concept. And that really stuck with me in that it's a bummer that they didn't actually take the time to to view the thing. And I'm I'm speaking about this. Because at this moment, as of this taping, there's a, a similar controversy, heavy quotes, about a movie on Netflix. And so it, it it really stuck out to me, the parallel between that issue and this issue. And that, like, when you, when you take a piece of media based on what is essentially a marketing asset, and you don't take the time to actually ingest it and form your opinion on it based on what it does i find that uh to be a disingenuous representation of the media itself absolutely uh unfortunately people getting real real mad about things they've never seen as a tale as old as time but yes i hope that if you've not seen it maybe you had seen some of the marketing and maybe you felt a little dissuaded from checking it out yes from from the sound of it uh, it does sound like this movie was sold as less than the totality of what it is. Um, again, I find what it is, your mileage may vary, but very, very, very impressive. And I guess uh, before we jump to the other side of the spoiler wall, uh, something we can do without spoiling anything is real quick talk about the cast and how absolutely incredible it is. Now, really more than anybody else, um, I really want to highlight uh, Teona Paris and Nick Cannon. So Teona Paris was cast on Mad Men. Um, and, and did a couple of years on that show. And I think for a lot of people, that was the first time they saw her. Uh, but obviously, here she gets to, uh, not single-handedly, because it is an ensemble piece, but she, in large part, carries the movie. She is playing Lysistrata. It's her story to drive. And I think she does an absolutely stellar job. And I think if you haven't seen this movie, it's worth watching just for her performance. And of course, a lot more people are going to see her uh, because she's going to be on WandaVision as the grown-up uh, Monica Rambo, So hopefully that brings everybody all the way into the Tiona Paris camp. Uh, it's it's nice in here. We have uh, umbrellas. <laughs> and uh, I also really do want to shout out Nick Cannon, who uh, I guess, uh, if the internet discourse is to be believed, a lot of people have opinions about, uh, opinions, uh, TM, but I think he does really spectacular work in this movie. Not to disrespect him as an actor, but going into this, I thought, okay, interesting choice to throw Nick Cannon in there. But I had no clue that he was capable of giving a performance like this. I had no clue that he was capable of this kind of range. And there was a scene at the end of the movie, which we'll talk about, of course, that 
leaves me absolutely wrecked. And I've seen this movie a couple of times, but leaves me absolutely wrecked. And yes, the subject matter is a factor, but it is Nick Cannon's performance and how deep he goes and how raw he goes. Um, I think his work is incredible. Also, and yes, we'll talk about everybody else, but Wesley Snipes, man, like I really do want to shout out like the two Wesley Snipes that seem to have existed uh, over the course of his career. You've got the one who's very much the Wesley Snipes from uh, Waiting to Exhale, which we talked about uh, last month, I believe. And that's the one of the most handsome, charismatic, smooth, like you know exactly why this dude became a movie star the way he did, right? And then at a certain point, Wesley Snipes, you know, he went away for a while. He was doing some stuff. And then he came back. And it seems that he made a very active choice to just do total fucking weirdo shit. And I am here for it. And it's still great. Like, he's no less compelling to watch as an actor. But you look at him in this movie. You look at him and say, Dolomite is my name. And it's like, dude, where? I don't know what happened between then and now that created this Wesley Snipes. But I, I fucking love it. And I want him to be here to stay. I have two corrections for you. Okay. Um, Wesley Snipes has always been a uh, crazy ranged, insanely uh, like comedic and action oriented actor. Like you watch him in like, let's say Boomerang or you watch him in even Demolition Man where he gets to be wild and crazy. Um, so like, baby, don't be sleeping on old, uh, Wesley Snipes and the place that he went was jail. Um, Uh, all right. Well, I wasn't going to say it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's like, he, he himself will acknowledge and like, and it it wasn't for anything insane. It was just like tax evasion and he's black and had money. So the IRS is more likely to go after him than let's say someone else. Like, I don't know, like a Jeff Bezos type. That's the whole thing. But uh, I would say go back and check out his his older stuff because he he's always had an a, insane amount of range. That said, like, I also think that he was allowed to branch out in the way that uh, Nick Cannon hadn't been allowed to before this role because he started in comedy, started doing like sketch and like he has kind of paved his way into the hip hop sphere um, but never was really able to do anything beyond just like goofy comedies. And I think that I am glad that he was allowed to really like stretch his his muscles because I think it's been in him all the time and he's always wanted to do something more important or something more with a message, but he's never really been given the opportunity. Right. And so, yes, to see him get to run like that i mean it, it is it's pretty it's pretty incredible i would say especially if you are somebody who has a uh, uh, hashtag opinions online tm about nick cannon um d- definitely check out his work here because it's it's pretty it's pretty spellbinding in my opinion also to your point about wesley snipes fair enough i guess a more accurate way for me to describe it then would be it seems like at a certain point in the last seven to ten years uh wesley snipes was replaced by alien wesley snipes and I'm here for I'm here for Alien <laughs> Wesley Snipes. Then okay. When I said Boomerang, I believe I was referring to New Jack's. No, not New Jack City. Jungle Fever. Oh, okay. Sorry. Also a Spike Lee joint. Yes, I think he is really good friends with Spike Lee. But don't quote me on that. I guess also when he did Tu Wong Fu, he also got to be fun and crazy. 
that's a good point. And not for nothing. Uh, he also, I mean, he's also blade. So like, you know, he lives in the weird, that weird sort of, yes, I can do the really smooth charismatic thing, but I also bite people and drink their blood. Right. That's what, that's what I do. Also, he is responsible uh, for my favorite, probably my favorite line read in any movie ever, which is him saying as blade, some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. I love it. I love him for it. I want him to say it in one of his movies. I'm sure that someone will get him to say it. I mean, though, as everyone who's tried to direct Wesley Snipes will tell you, you don't direct Wesley Snipes. Like, you just tell him it's time to go, and he'll he'll do his thing. <laughs> I, just, I just feel like you could have put it in this movie somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, let's lay down our guns. We all need to chill. Some motherfucker's always trying to ice skate uphill. That's it. That's all I need. Oh, uh, that's good. I really like that. All right. We have stalled long enough. It's time to go past the spoiler wall. I'm I'm lowering it. Tinka 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 tinka. Take this time to uh, look up all the the best Wesley Snipes things. While you're doing that, uh, and you're on the internet, if you're feeling so inclined, if you're feeling kind in your heart, please go onto Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating, a review. You guys know what that do. Ooh, see? Rhymes, baby. I'm I'm infected by that sweet, sweet rhyme virus. (laughs) I've got the rhyme disease. Well, if our if our work wasn't done already, it's oh, certainly man. done now. We will be coming back with our Buster Recap. We'll be talking about the themes. We'll be talking about the controversies. We'll be talking about the characters. Ooh, we'll be talking about John Cusack, <laughs> that motherfucker. Uh, so make sure to join us after this break. All right, we are back, and you know what time it is. It's time to bust a recap, but there will be no gunshots as we have put our guns down in order to find a more peaceful solution. Um, So I guess, oh yeah, it's me. I do a recap. So as you might know, this is a retelling of Lysistrata, the Greek play by ooh i'm going to mess this name up so bad <laughs> aristophanes nailed it hell yeah and the the general curvature or arc of the story is that uh lysistrata arranges a sex strike because there's so much strife between the two factioning groups in chicago which is compared to a war zone, uh, so they call it Chirac. So it's between her boyfriend, or I guess lover, depending on how you view their relationship, but his gang of the Trojan, he's on the Trojans? Yes, he is a Trojan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, he's a Spartan. I I had to remember, like my brain was going through all the different images. Uh, Her boyfriend slash lover, played by Nick Cannon, uh, Demetrius, also known as Chirac. They are the Spartans, and they are fighting against the Trojans, which is led by Cyclops, who is played by Wesley Snipes. And essentially, there is a, a big plot line in which a young girl named Patty gets shot in a drive-by, and no one will give any information because as the adage goes, the age-old adage, I, I believe it was written in the original Lysistrata, that snitches 
doth get stitches. <laughs> and so uh, they're realizing all the women are coming together because they're tired of all the violence. They're tired of people getting murdered in the streets because of some dumb, uh, you know, war between men and their dumb guns, which are just fucking they're just like euphemisms for their dumb penises so they're like yo we're gonna withhold sex until the violence stops no pussy no peace in reverse order (laughs) now we get a bunch of other people coming in like we have this group of old men who are gross and (laughs) i hate them but they are like supposed to be a philosopher's group and they're like, wow, we're sexists and women should be in the dumb kitchen. We hate women. And they're going in. And while they're trying to convince the sex strike to end, Helen, who uh, is played by Angela Bassett, who I assume is Helen of Troy uh, in the original story, she also gets a group of older women and she's like, yo, we also gots to keep our pussies from getting penetrated. And so they also support the women's sex strike. And uh, as this is happening and as the men are getting more horny, they are trying to resort to different tactics and then the women take over a base like a like a military base using seduction and no weapons which is dope uh and so once they do that then it escalates and the the press gets involved then their no peace no pussy mantra spreads around the world And we have to figure out how to get this strike to end. And the horny, horny mayor is getting blamed. He got called by the president and the president's like, oh, hey, I'm not getting sex either. So nothing's in the butt. I'm Barack Obama because this was made in 2015. (laughs) And so then once it gets escalated and time passes and the women stay resolute in their demand for peace, Uh, we start to see a lot of the gangsters really starting to question the reason that they're in these gangs and they're really starting to come to terms with the futility of their own actions in that they are perpetuating a cycle. You know, and some of them are still very much into the lifestyle, which is Nick Cannon, who's like, yo, I'm a fucking, I'm a fucking G till I die, motherfuckers. My daddy gave me issues. I have daddy issues and I have to be tough because my daddy. And so it comes down to it that they, the only way to end it is a sex off. (laughs) And so the, the, they're gonna, from what I understand, and please correct me if I'm wrong, they're going to do a sex, and whoever finishes first uh, loses. <laughs> but in the end, all the all the gangsters are like, "This is stupid. We're gonna we're gonna go move on with our lives. There's been enough bloodshed." And the mayor is also like, "Yeah, you guys are right. Let's let's put in some social programs because it's not just about 
the violence, it's also about the lack of opportunity. It's also about the lack of, of jobs. It's also about how the only way to make money is because of guns, because no one will give anyone loans to start businesses. And so they're like, it can't just be about putting down your guns. It has to be about bringing the society up. And so they start to embark on doing so. But Nick Cannon is like, oh, I still have dead problems. I'm a gangster. <laughs> and he's about to walk out. And all the moms are like, look at our dead kids. This is your fault. You look at our dead kids. And he's like, I, I made one of those dead kids. <laughs> and you find out that he killed Patty. And so he, like his father before him will go to jail for killing a kid his father demanded to be uh, forgiven not demanded he asked forgiveness and so too nick cannon shall do and so peace is achieved and pussy rains from the sky <laughs> figuratively not literally uh and that's that's Chirac. earth pretty good Thank you. You nailed it. I feel like all of the tonal pivots were there. Uh, you didn't do a musical number in your retelling, so uh, you get dinged for that. But okay. I'll give you a strong. I'll give you a strong A minus. All right, I'll take that. Uh, I assume <laughs> that there's a curve, like the the way that the Earth is made. So I'll take that as a proper A. Thanks. Yes, there's a curve exactly like the Earth's, which we all know is flat. Oh no! Oh, 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 I'm I'm floating. I'm floating away. This is crazy. Um, I, I can't wait to see the edge of the world. <laughs> Anyways, so yeah, I think uh, since you mentioned uh, Tiana Paris, I really wanted to commend her on her performance. She really, like as you said, drove this whole thing forward, and I think was instrumental in like because there are a lot of side players there's a lot of star power and for her to be one of the lesser known stars of this movie and to, for her to kill every interaction she has just shows how much her performance is so stand out and i think that like it's a it's a really uh worth noting in my words not yours <laughs> yes uh i uh as aforementioned agree with you thank you um but also i do like there's there are a number of supporting players some of whom only show up for a scene or two but that are really fun to see dave Chappelle shows up in this thing yes for a scene is a guy running a strip club and uh to his chagrin of course all of the strippers uh are not there because they are on strike and so wesley snipes character has one of his guys go real awkwardly spin around the stripper pole and i love like, presumably that guy wouldn't have chosen to do that of his own volition. Right. But once they were like, go to that pole and get down, he just, he does, he goes for it. Like, you could tell he's not totally comfortable. He's probably, is probably new for him. Yeah. But I appreciate, like, he's not like, no, he's not, he doesn't get all like toxic masculinity about it. He's just like, all right, well, somebody's got to do it. We got to do business and stuff. <laughs> It'll be me tonight. I, I feel like because uh, you brought up Dave Chappelle, I wrote in my notes that he kills his verse like he does it's it feels so natural for him yes and like each individual throughout the movie has is has a certain amount of proficiency with the verse like some of them you can tell are really struggling through it and some of them just abandon it uh 
Yep. So, uh, John Cusack. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about him. Uh, we'll yes, we will him. talk about him. Because uh, I have a lot to say about him. Uh, <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> but really, like, I, I feel like he, in his short amount of time on screen, like, really nails his scene, is super engaging, is smoking like he always does, because you can't make Dave Chappelle not smoke, apparently. But, yeah, I think that he really uh, stands out just in the same way that Samuel Jackson had a lot of weight to carry, because his are monologues, basically. Yes. Well, he's he functions essentially as the Greek chorus. And so he... Uh, has these very long verses and I think that like he nails them and keeps them exciting and engaging like as uh Samuel Jackson is wont to do like he is a uh insanely talented actor oh, yeah. with a wide variety of range but like he he manages to give this narrative and basically exposit um in verse without you like losing interest without you being like oh he's just he's just being samuel no like he he really embodies this greek chorus and i think he is also another really big standout performance especially because he never really gets to act against anyone so he we are the people he's acting against yes um and and somebody else i do really want to talk about uh who gets a little bit less screen time but gave a performance moment that I think affected me more than almost anything else in the movie, with the exception of the work Nick Cannon does towards the end. I really want to shout out Jennifer Hudson, um, and I want to shout out the way that she and Spike Lee collaborated on the scene in which uh, her character discovers that her baby girl has been killed. Now, it's mm. not its not for me to go into detail about it on a podcast that is also really silly and goofy, but uh, this is a subject matter that is very, very close uh, to home for Jennifer Hudson. And I do think that, uh, obviously, she's drawing from her own experience, but what I found really fascinating about that scene is that in most movies, I think you would go immediately to the really big emotion. Like you'd almost go immediately to the melodrama of it. It's understandable, right? Like it's it's a big, you know, in, in movie terms, we're talking like a big uh, melodramatic happening. But they don't go straight there in this movie. And what they do instead is you have about a minute of Jennifer Hudson's character mentally walking through what's happening. Like literally piecing together in real time what she is seeing and you see her go through uh, every step of processing of sort of realizing what's going on of denying it to herself and then finally being forced to accept something this utterly fucking devastating and then the emotion comes and right. i thought that was fucking incredible dude like it it fucked me up yeah because it really walks this line of someone who there's a an aspect of living in these communities that are plagued with violence that it always feels like it's a just a matter of time and so you you could expect that big reaction but it's also just a confirmation of her worst fears and so there's a, an aspect of like having run through this scenario in her mind a million times and now it's it's an actual tangible thing and she really plays that line of it 
affecting her, but also the numbness that comes with this expectation of it occurring. And I, I agree. Like I was going to point out a different scene, which was when she was cleaning up the blood. That scene, I think, is also insanely powerful. Yes. In that, like, it's a piece of her child that is staining the sidewalk, and she she wants to remove it because it, it's just a, this constant reminder of the thing that she's lost. So yeah, I also I I agree. She did a great job. Yeah, I mean, like, we could literally sit here and blow the entire cast for hours and hours and hours. You're right. So let's take a different turn. Yeah, um, we could just go down the IMDb and be like, they're great. They're great. They're so good. No, let's talk about. There was another person in that scene, and I was like, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> and that was John Cusack. Um, so uh, from what I understand, his character is based off of a real person that exists. And so his, his character name is Father Mike Cordigan. And I don't know why his character was there. It like felt like it was <laughs> written for a black actor, and then they just threw... John Cusack in there and he just exists in this weird space. One, he seems to be like a Catholic priest, but it feels like everyone else in this movie is some form of like Christian Baptist church of God in Christ, like some denomination that is not Catholic. So it's, it's weird that he exists and that everyone keeps calling him father. And it's, it's weird. Cause that it doesn't, that doesn't track with my, my history in, in black church, but also like the first time you see him, he's there and you're like, okay. And then he <laughs> proceeds the next time you see him to do like a 10 minute long rant slash like sermon lecture about like the violence plaguing the community and violence in the in 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 the world and the black experience and I was like this means so little coming from this white dude like it it like doesn't ring any like stopped doing verse and so like he's just screaming for what feels like an hour and is like it it seems like his voice was already hoarse by the time he started. So I don't know how many takes they did of his rant, but it like I, I tuned out so hard because I was like, this doesn't feel like it was written for you and it doesn't feel like it should be coming out of your mouth. They go about an hour and a half into the movie. They take the time to explain why he's there and that he's like, I grew up in this neighborhood and, you know, I found Jesus and Jesus, you know, did stuff in, in poor, poor you know, disenfranchised places, so I thought I'd do the two. Uh, and like, I was, it's, that's fine, I guess. But he also is like, there's a moment where he's like, they, they do something to us, and it's like, they don't do it to you! <laughs> you don't get it! <laughs> um, it's Real fascinating. Um, you sent me a text, presumably while you were maybe right in the middle of watching that sermon scene, and it was basically a text to the effect of, what the fuck is John Cusack doing in this movie? And I sent you a crying laughing emoji because I can't really answer the question beyond, um, it's interesting that you say that the monologue, the sermon he gives feels like it was written for a different actor because to the best 
of my knowledge, John Cusack was attached to this project from very, very early on, like all the way back when fucking Kanye West was apparently going to be in this thing at one point. I'm not sure as who, as Chirac, maybe? I think so, yeah. But, uh, you know, he's a he's a native Chicagoan. And I, I mean, look, I do think it's kind of cool that when people were taking shots at the movie without having seen it, he was one of the, you know, kind of most outspoken, staunchest defenders of the movie and of Spike Lee's work. So that was cool. But what's really fascinating about this sermon is that it's full of like almost every statistic he gives is not accurate, which I find really fascinating. And it's too, it's too many and it's too um, pervasive throughout his sermon for it to be something that everybody completely missed. Um, And I, I did a little bit of research and it looks like some of the statistics that he's rattling off are a lot more in line with the statistics uh, from Inglewood, but also even some of those statistics are not quite right. And so I'm wondering, because I'm having a hard time as I look around finding too much discussion about the intention behind the way this character is utilized in the movie. So I, like like you, am left to puzzle at it and try and come up with some kind of meaning for myself. So it's like, all right, you know, maybe in another movie you expect this character somewhere in the second half to be revealed as like a massive hypocrite or something. Um, like it ends up being explicitly on the wrong side of things despite, you know, hiding behind um, the shield of religion and, and faith in God. But that doesn't happen. It seems like he is, he is genuinely on the right side of things while simultaneously taking ownership of kind of experiences and cultural signifiers that aren't his, but he also comes from the same neighborhood and genuinely cares about the neighborhood, but also like he's saying, like, like you said, there are things that are done to members of my community that are not done to me. And so I, is it, it's like a a commentary on some type of appropriation? Is it commentary on how, even if you're well-intentioned, you may run your mouth about things you don't understand and it's not your place to do that? To be honest, I am not completely sure. I couldn't find anything either. Like I couldn't even really find any effective interviews where he's like, yeah, I got in this because Spike Lee owed me me money (laughs) uh, or something. And look, I'm not saying that if you are, white you can't you know talk about black issues i'm saying that john cusack did a bad job and i don't like him in this movie (laughs) see Um, i i see i honestly for me i like him fine because he's an actor that i've been watching for many many years and there's that familiar quality to him but yeah i i I puzzle. I puzzle very broadly (laughs) over the utilization of this character like i didn't react negatively the way it seems like uh, you did at least to an extent, but yes, uh, befuddlement I think is is maybe the right word. Yeah, I mean it feel it feels like, and this is this these movies took place very far apart, but uh, not very far apart actually, I guess. But it feels like how in the Black Panther movie we had to have Martin Freeman, so like you know white people can be like, oh, I see myself in this film, so. Maybe maybe the point of it was that, like, if white people watch this movie, they will hear it if it's coming from another white person. So they're like, we're going to put all these things in this white man's mouth. Uh, and then the white ears will be like, "Ooh, look, it must be real. Right. Which I which actually is a thought that occurred to me while I was watching that sermon as well. But then the 
flip side to that is like the statistics are largely not correct, which I find like a really interesting juxtaposition. Um, so like, yes, obviously there could be that aspect of like, well, maybe white people are more inclined to hear it from other white people and stuff. But, but then at the same time to rattle off statistics that are not correct, I find really like genuinely interesting, not, and not in a, oh, they fucked that up way in a, there are inconsistencies to an extent that again, I don't feel like was a total whoops. And so I'm wondering if there was greater intention um, as pertains to the character specifically, or if that was a little bit more about, we're making the point that that uh, the things that he's talking about, whether or not it's necessarily his, his experience to recount, uh, the things he's talking about are not unique to their neighborhood, right? Like, so these statistics aren't from here, which maybe he should clarify, but these statistics are incredibly relevant because this is happening in communities just like ours all over the place. So maybe it's something like that, but again, it's super strange because he, you really do wait for some kind of bizarre third act turn and it never comes. So he's just a nice, somewhat problematic guy, I guess. (laughs) Yep. Um, so speaking of problematic, I feel like we are, we've gotten far enough into this where, uh, I can start airing out my own issues that uh, I feel might be problematic in terms of this movie. Okay. I will start with an, with the general controversy from people of Chicago in that, like, they don't like being compared to, like, war zones and stuff. Wow. Really? <laughs> yeah. They don't like it. Go figure. Yeah. And, like... Spike Lee didn't come up with the uh, term Chirac. It's a thing that hip-hop artists from Chicago came up with. But I also feel like the the use of it, I don't know, like I feel like it kind of dilutes the meaning of the movie. And I think it also, like, I think it is might be a little, I don't know, insensitive to people in Iraq as well. Um, I feel like it's, it's insensitive to people who are suffering these tragedies to be like, all war zones are the same. People dying is the same. And Ooh, man, it's, it's like Iraq. Cause that place is sh- a shit bucket. Um, which is, you know, like it's a, it's mostly a, a victim of a lot of terrible things, uh, whether it be, you know, bad regimes or, know if you heard about this but america did a bad did some bad stuff there what uh, you know they're also victims um (laughs) yeah so i think that that is a valid criticism of this movie and its use of uh statistics from these places um to compare the atrocities that also happen in chicago because like it's a it's a bigger issue than like you know, just people wanting to murder each other. Like, they they dress it a bit in the movie that, like, yes, it's very systemic and that people are redlined into these communities and then denied opportunities. And, and if you just even Google the cause of crime, <laughs> it's, it's often, you know, due to poverty and desperation and, and the, like, high need and lack of resources – and we as a, a a species are resourceful, and so we have to, you know, resort to whatever it is that will lead to us surviving. And sometimes that is doing a crime to live. 
Um, no one's like, oh, I'm, uh, or I guess it's rare um, that people are just like, oh, yeah, I love doing a crime. It's more that like you have to do a crime because you don't have other options. Um, and I feel like that's slightly addressed, but I think it's it's too overshadowed by everything else happening in the in the film that like, yeah, dude they could decide to put down their guns, but like there's other factors and I'm glad that they eventually get to those pieces, but I don't feel like it is very well uh, addressed. Okay. Um, so that's, that's one of my issues. Um, I think the other issue and this overall is a, an issue that means that the movie can't happen but the movie ignores the existence of sexual assault and it ignores the existence of homosexuality. Well, actually not 100%, even though it is, it exists really only in one reference, but it's a reference that I do like. There's the scene with this sort of older gentleman that I think you were describing, not particularly caring for. Yes. Uh, they're called the Knights of Euphrates. Yes. So one of them has a line uh, about how even uh, even the sort of uh, uh, like people who are in the closet, like not out, are like refusing each other sex as well. And then very quickly he's like, "Oh, but I don't know how I know that." But that's it. Like you're beyond that. Yes, you're you're entirely correct. They they really do not address it at all. Right. Um. And so and this I think was really well uh, articulated by Francesca Ramsey. Uh, she was talking about a Q&A that she had attended when this came out uh, where Spike Lee was there and she had asked him about why it wasn't addressed in the film and I, th I think and I can't speak for Spike Lee but he gave her a very like flippant answer and I think he was defensive because of all the flack that he had gotten before it had launched but I also like her would really like a definitive answer as to why like the idea of assault because it's it's the way she put it you know this movie is about sex and this movie is about violence but it ignores the existence of sexual violence and that is and I'm I'm not saying that like oh man I would have really liked to see a a sex crime right. um it's more that like I just it could have been something that was in passing like, you know, fucking, these are made up gangs. So like, there's a code that like, you know, we respect our women or blah, blah, blah. Like even just like lip service, just to explain that, like how this works in our modern society. So that's my other issue. Um, or like just another piece of problematic that like I feel like should be addressed if we're going to talk about the movie. I wanted to ask you how you feel about the ending in particular. This is a myth, right? It's based it's based pretty directly on a, I mean it's a play, but a, a sort of myth mythical story. And so you have what essentially amounts to a, a fairy tale ending. And I'm just very curious as to how that played for you. Here's the thing: I think I would have liked it more if the sex off didn't happen right um i thought the sex off was too it was too silly for this silly movie and i think that it could have been like that the because we get the lead up to 
the Trojans giving up their guns. Like we have them, ha- they have a full conversation about how they're all reconsidering the game. And we have a long discussion towards the Demetrius character from, uh, I believe his name is Spinner, who's a man in a wheelchair because of gang violence. And we have him talking about how, you know, it's this cyclical thing and it's it's a plague on their community and you get that like all of these people i mean they don't make the direct comparison that they have more time to think because they're not doing a sex but like that's the implicit piece of it in that like you know now that they aren't reaping the benefit of um you know this gangster life having them be sexy men male men um and you know they get to do all the sex because of how cool they are now they have the time to really consider the the other aspects of it which is that like it kills people and so like that i think being the lead up to the fantastical uh signing of the treaties i think that would have been enough uh i think the sex off was dumb and i think that like <laughs> Uh, uh, what? Why are you laughing? You, you tickle me. <laughs> um, no, I, 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 no, I'm with, I'm, I'm with you. I'm sort of uh, uh, laughing in tacit, uh, <laughs> tacit agreement. Even though, you know what? It's, I, it didn't necessarily rub me as, as incorrectly as it maybe did you. But I, I agree. When we get there, it feels very much like we are taking a much harder left turn than we have taken at any point in the movie. And even though it does seem like once Wesley Snipes and his crew show up, that there was an element of this is a stalling tactic to it. It still feels very much like, yeah, we, a lot of things we could have done. We could have made a lot of different choices here and we're making this one. It is, however, a real big choice. So I guess I applaud it for that. But yes, I, I agree when we get there, it does feel a little bit like, how how did we get here? Yeah, and I think that, like, I will say to the movie's credit, it did do a good job of showing the escalation uh, and doubling back on, on the mayor character to, to show the pressure that he was under. I get that, like, they justify it in world that he has pressure from around the world, all eyes are on him. I think that, like... I could have done with maybe a jump forward to show that like it's being upheld and like, and a difference was made. I also, but though I also did really like what I, I guess I'm calling the procession of dead children. And I think that to me, like it's a stronger impetus for them to have signed these treaties than just them being like, well, guess more or less sex. Cause like, you know, those children the connecting the idea of them not having sex also to the fact that like, if they're not having sex, they can't have children who will eventually be murdered in this community, I think could have been a really strong way to tie these concepts together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it just missed that by, by a short amount. Okay. Fair enough. All right. So do you have any final thoughts? Any uh, last 
topics you want to just smack down do you also dislike john cusack how did you feel about the knights of boners <laughs> um you know what two things i guess since you mentioned john cusack again and you mentioned the mayor uh a minute ago i do think it's interesting that even though the movie doesn't dwell on this as explicitly certainly as, as some of spike lee's other works have I do think it's interesting that you have a few white characters in this movie that uh, are featured somewhat prominently that are arguably avatars of different forms of racism, some more subtle than others. And the range is, you know, you have David Patrick Kelly, uh, who essentially is just styled his entire persona uh, after uh, Confederate general. Um, sidebar, uh, I'm a fan of David Patrick Kelly initially from Twin Peaks. Look, I haven't gotten to talk about Twin Peaks in a while. Hooray for me. And he <laughs> plays the brother of a character called Ben Horn, who in one of the not so great plot lines from the second season that definitely overstayed its welcome, uh, has a basically total mental emotional collapse and believes himself to be a Civil War Confederate general. And I thought that was a weird parallel also uh at one point wesley snipes uh says the the bitches and hoes come out to play which is a reference to the warriors which david patrick kelly was also in but obviously that type of racism very fucking overt that's about as overtly racist as you can fucking get um but then you also have the mayor who every single fucking opportunity he has wants to let everybody fucking know that his wife is black like really wants to make this fucking point and then the the glimpses the real quick glimpses uh you see of their relationship juxtaposed with this gives it this their relationship this sort of nasty fetishistic tinge and Uh a whole different kind of racism and then going all the way back you have john cusack who we are still puzzling over but you could argue that whether or not your intentions are positive taking on all of these cultural signifiers that maybe aren't yours to take on is another kind and of the three maybe certainly in the context of the movie the the least egregious but i do think it's interesting that the the white characters in this movie all do arguably represent different types of racism and it just exists right it just exists in the world just like it exists in our world without the movie necessarily being about that but i do think that part of it is interesting uh maybe that stuck out to you too uh but (laughs) the other thing um and just go with me on this uh something we didn't do this week and i I was sort of planning on breaking the format in this way regardless Uh, but something we didn't do this week is a what's the difference and the biggest reason I oh, yeah. biggest reason I was going to sort of buck the format, which I will do now, uh, is that yes, of course, names uh, have been changed. The cultural signifiers have all been updated. Obviously, it is set um, in something much more closely resembling the here and now. But something that really strikes me, and I, I alluded to this when we first started this conversation, uh, something that really sticks out to me is how little you have to change to tell the story of Lysistrata now and make it entirely relevant. And like I said, it is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, about how, uh, you know, there's there's some stuff going on right now in the world that's maybe not super awesome. And it's entirely possible that a lot of what's happening could have been averted if we 
had a better understanding of our history and not just our individual history, but our shared history. And I think we as a culture have done a very, very poor job of reinforcing what has come before in our minds. History is not over. It's not behind us. And these things keep happening again and again and again. And it seems like we never learn. And I'm going to be the first one to say, yo, white people in particular seem to be really fucking bad at at listening. Did you know? Um, And so for me, you know, like there was a moment, there's a, there's a scene where Angela Bassett references that um, she came from like Cabrini Green, right? You you know where I, I learned what Cabrini Green is? It, it wasn't in school. It, it wasn't like from people in my life. Like I learned about that area because I saw Candyman. You know what I mean? Like, like think about the number of people who didn't know about Tulsa until they watched Watchmen. We've been doing a really fucking bad job at acknowledging our history and learning from it. And I think we need to fucking do better. And that's part of really like what I found as whimsical as this movie gets at times, I found it rather devastating to watch because we see people over and over and over and over, uh, even though, yes, they make decisions. And especially when they're grown people, they have to own those decisions. They are responsible for them. These cycles are essentially, they're, they're forced into them, right? Because we don't, break them culturally because we don't learn, because we don't communicate, because we don't listen. And it really does, it breaks my fucking heart, man. Like it really, it does. And so that is what I was going to do earlier when you were like, tell us what the difference is. I don't, man, like there, there isn't enough of one and it really fucking bothers me. I think it should bother everybody. So here's my thought about that. I'm sure that white people listen to this and they're like, I'll, I'll listen. Um, and I think it's not just an individual problem. I think it's a systemic issue in that, yes, um, it is harder to learn about these tragedies because a lot of our education is whitewashed. And it is very much like this. it's the old adage that history is told by the winners. It's this way of re- formatting and re-engineering the the dirty gross history of our not even just our nation but the way that the world became the way it is and removing all of the aspects that make the winners uh look bad and especially at this moment in time where the very foundation of our education system is constantly under attack and the president at, at this moment is talking about um, trying to essentially teach propaganda instead of history. I think it's important to also uh, try to look into ways of enacting change so that the the actual history is taught to us and we don't have to look for it after the fact. We don't have to come in contact with our harsh truths at such a late age that we've already developed our sense of self. I was listening to the 1619 podcast and someone was discussing how it, it's a detriment to white people as well to not teach them this history because they are effectively taught that the world is a certain way and then they are their whole world effectively has to be flipped upside down. And then 
they're forced to either reconcile with that, which is a long process, or they have to just double down. Whereas if they're taught this information from the very beginning, then they are, yes, forced to confront confront the truth, but it's not so devastating and and shocking to them as they grow up because they are able to learn from those mistakes and improve the world that they live in as opposed to having to cling so desperately to the world that they were given. So I agree with you. I think it's also, there's a a very big umbrella, uh, as you said, we get umbrellas here, that needs to be addressed as well. Yes. That, I think, is all the time that we have. Yes. Uh, One one super quick last thing on that note. Um, If I wasn't taught uh, by the education system or people in my life about things that are very much part of our American history. Yeah, nobody was going to teach me about Lema Bowie, who, uh, yes, is a real person, not somebody that they invented for the movie. And you should look her up if you are not familiar. Um, Her organized action, um, including a sex strike, uh, led to the end of the Second Liberian Civil War. Um, she did a talk at Google that you can go watch on YouTube. I think it's about an hour, 10 minutes. Uh, definitely worth your time. Go go check that out. And don't let nobody tell you that uh, social action and protest doesn't get anything done because they're wrong. That's all. All right, Lex, if someone wants to talk to you about sex strikes or the society or learning or about Wesley Snipes. They want to school you about his great and powerful IMDb page. <laughs> Where can they find you? Um, I am on Twitter and Instagram at the Lex Michael. I also do another podcast with my partner, Marianne Ramish. It is called Friends with Benefits, where we take a look at the massive pop culture juggernaut that is the television series Friends, of which Marianne is a gigantic fan and of which, oh boy, Am I not? But thankfully, I'm having a much better time talking about it than watching it. You can watch it along with us. It's streaming on HBO Max right now. We talk about it from a fan perspective and a critical perspective. You can find that wherever you find your podcasts, Friends with Benefits. And Tari J, where can people find you? Oh my gosh. You can find me at Tari J. That's T-A-U-R-I-J-A-Y. I'm on Twitter. I don't post on my Instagram unless I'm on vacation, so I won't be posting for the next, I don't know, year and a half. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, follow me on Twitter. But most importantly, you can find this podcast at Missing Outcast. That's M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T. And we will be completing this Cinema Lit 101 month with a modern recreation of the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by uh, discussing (laughs) The Nutty (laughs) Professor starring uh, Eddie Murphy. So you're going to get some sweet, sweet clump action, baby. Uh, I can't wait to talk about it. I can't wait to discuss how much it does not hold up um, cause comedy rarely does. Oh no, I, I would have, I would have thought that it's a movie as thematically relevant today as ever. Oh yeah. I too want to put my beef in your taco. <laughs> so make sure to join us next week. Uh, until then, this has been the retrospective that is introspective. And now you have a new perspective. No pod, no P word, you fucks.
Oh, yeah, but you got to say it in, in verse. Otherwise, people might be quite terse.